Well, everything I have to say this morning has been said by us already, in one way or another, whether in prayer or in song or in the recitation of scripture. One of the wonderful things about a formal liturgy is that even if your preacher is bad, God's word never fails, and it it is here for us. It has been here with us from the beginning of our work today. And what a glorious truth has been held up, the doctrine of the atonement of Jesus Christ. We've said these words, Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Mark that sacrifice appointed. Jesus Speaking through his prophet in the book of Lamentations, first chapter, verse 12, says, Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow, which is done unto me, wherewith the Lord hath afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. This is the text I've chosen for us, especially to consider this morning. There's many texts that we could open up. We, have, we sometimes say of ourselves when we're going through a difficult season of life, I'm going through hell. We sometimes, let's say we, we had our identity stolen. Have you ever had your identity stolen? I have. It's awful, it's annoying, it's a bother, like you wouldn't wouldn't believe. If you get your email hacked, and if you had your accounts with eBay and Amazon or any other online store set up with your email account, you have to then contact all of these providers, work out details, try to get your email restored if it's been hacked. I still don't have access to my email account from Yahoo!, as a result of it being hacked, they would not give it back to me. And we say at moments like that, oh man, this week has been hell. You lose your job, you lose your house, you lose a loved one, and there are many other things that, we, that are much closer to the bone that we're experiencing as individuals in this church right now than that. But are these painful circumstances in our life, do they qualify as going through hell? As tragic as they are, no, of course not. Well, why not? Because hell is a place prepared. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 25. Hell is a place prepared. In other words, You can't possibly be going through it now because it is out there in the future. It's appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment. And it's that judgment which determines our eternal destiny, whether it be with the Lord in paradise or with the depraved, those who have rejected Christ in eternal torment in hell. Hell is a place 
a place that's held out and being prepared for the future, of ever, a place of everlasting pain and torment and suffering, of weeping and gnashing of teeth, where it says that worms never die and the fire is never quenched, never put out, where you'll be so desperate for relief that one little tiny drop touched on your tongue is, is like the cry of your heart. Lord, could there just be a drop of water on, put on my tongue? And the answer will be no. You can't even have that. It'll be everlasting, perpetual torment. It's a place where God's wrath is poured out in judgment perpetually. It will be the fullest possible expression of his perfect hatred for sin. So no, hell is not what we experience here, even in our, the points of our greatest sorrow and suffering in life. I went through a really serious depression in high school. Six months, I hardly slept, stared at the wall. I won't go into why. It's a pretty typical story. <laughs> but I experienced it. It was awful. And I'm, but yet, here I am, not in it anymore. Even while I was, it was not hell. Is hell this place of perpetual torment? Is it what we deserve? It is what we deserve. Why? Because of our sin. What is sin? Let's just remind ourselves. What is sin? You could define it in a number of ways. Here's one. Sin is any violation of God's character or of his name or of his will. Any violation of his character, his name, or his will. And because his character is perfect, perfection, every violation of that perfection, of that glory, of that holiness, must be demolished, destroyed, put away, dealt with. All have sinned. Some of us, I've heard some of us, I've even at times in my life felt this, okay? I've heard some of us say, well, I don't know of any, I don't, I don't know of any sin in my life. I don't, I'm not aware. You know, I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to examine myself when we come to the Lord's Supper, but, you know, I don't, I don't know. Am I a sinner? Well, Listen, I said that I've experienced that. I've thought that too. I've wondered, well, I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not aware of anything. Listen, you are not a good judge of your sin. I'm not a good judge of my sin. God is. And even at times when we're not sufficiently aware of our sinfulness, we can trust his word. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none who does good, no, not one. And so, sin is pervasive in our lives, and God, it, is a, it is a violation of God's holiness, 
And it must be put down. It must be dealt with. And each infraction, any slightest infraction, God says is a breach of his entire law, which is to say it is a violation of his entire character. And it must be dealt with as such. It must be given an infinite punishment. You know, the holy angels who have no sin, this is just to give us a picture of how holy God is, which is what we need, and if we're going to understand ourselves, we have to know God. The holy angels, the holiest of holy angels who stand in his presence, they can't help but cry out, Holy, holy, holy is this Lord. And as they do it, they have to cover their eyes. They can't even look on him. That is the holiness of God. And any slight infraction of it must be dealt with infinitely because he is infinite and sin is contrary in every way to his character. What are these temporal sins? or not sins, but temporal sufferings, these momentary light afflictions that we experience, what are they if they're not hell? I mean, suffering in this life can be very bad. can be very bad, much worse than any of us have experienced. It can get much, much worse and still be far short of hell. What are these temporary sufferings, whether they be light or significant, but temporary in, in this life? What are they? Well, we, lived in, we live because of sin. The fruit of sin is death. We live in this world, and this world is dying all around us. You are. I am. When you hit probably 25 to 30, you start to recognize this principle at work in your body. Things are moving, and it's not in an optimistic direction. You start to sit on a wooden chair before it wouldn't bother you, and suddenly you sit still for five minutes on a wooden chair, and you're frozen in place because of the pain. (laughs) I experienced this this week. Death, suffering everywhere. Watch the Discovery Channel. You know those animals attacking, stalking, and killing other animals? That's not normal. I mean, it is. It's the world we live in, but that's not natural. That's the fruit of sin in the world. The violence of this world. The maggots that eat away the wood of your house. The diseases, the sicknesses that afflict us. These sufferings are not hell, but they came from sin. What are they? As painful as the circumstances of our life can be, they're not equivalent to the eternal and infinite torments of hell. What are they then? They depend, the answer to that question depends very much on the perspective that you, your standing 
in terms of God, in terms of Jesus Christ? Your answer to that question depends very much on your standing in Jesus, whether you are found in him or whether you are found outside of him. What are they outside of Jesus? Well, they're like shots across your bow. They're like bells ringing of impending doom. They are a constant reminder to your conscience, a burden, a foreboding of what you know is coming and that you fully deserve for your sin. That's what, outside of Jesus Christ and his redemptive work, that's what your suffering is. There's no hope in them, but rather an affliction to your conscience that tells you and drives you down to the grave and brings you to hell. If you're in Jesus Christ, though, what are they? Well, they're reminders of the hell that you are escaping through him. They're reminders of the promise and the hope of the gospel. They are God's, they're transformed through Christ into God's loving, tender, caring, compassionate discipline of you. As he not drives you down to hell, but lifts you up to heaven and makes you fit for it and works out his salvation in you through suffering. So it matters very much your perspective and your standing in Jesus Christ, what these sufferings that we experience in this life are, what they mean. We sometimes think in the midst of really bad suffering, oh, it can't get any worse. But brothers and sisters, friends, it certainly can. It can get infinitely worse. And it is going to for many. Apart from a miracle of intervention, it is certain to get worse. We are certain to reach that place that is prepared, which is hell. What is that miracle of intervention that we need? Well, it's this this sacrifice appointed that we've been singing about. It's the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So we say of ourselves often wrongly, I'm going, it's been a hell of a week. I'm going through hell. But in our creed, the Apostles' Creed, we rightly say, not only that he was crucified, dead, and buried, but he descended into hell. Jesus It can be said truthfully of, he descended into hell. He went through hell. And this is a very, very important and precious doctrine. If it it just said in the creed that Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried, if it said that he was crucified, dead, and buried, and he rose from the dead, we would not have said what needed to be said. We would not have said what needed to be said. If that is all Jesus did, then you could say it, it was a wasted and insignificant act. 
Because many, many men, and I assume women, were crucified, dead, and buried by Rome. Some of them were buried. I think a lot of them were, their bodies were just strewn about the streets. But many, many people were crucified in that way. So it's not just the sufferings of Jesus that were awful. We watched the, the if you've seen Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, you've seen a, an attempt to portray how awful crucifixion, crucifixion is. I don't recommend the movie, but that's what it is. It's just like a, as graphic as Hollywood can muster version of the crucifixion, and it probably was that bad or worse. Awful, gory, disgusting. But as bad as it was, there's nothing unique about it. Jesus, many men died in just that way, and I'm tempted to think that men have died in worse ways. So it's not just that he died in a uniquely awful way or fashion that makes Jesus' sacrifice unique. It's something more, something behind it that infuses it with the meaning that it has. It's something that transcends what we're able to see with our eyes. It's something that Mel Gibson can't possibly capture in a movie. The gospel accounts can hardly capture it. We get a glimpse of it. We got a glimpse in Matthew chapter 20, what did we read, 27? Where Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you see the earth respond <laughs> to this something happening that's transcending the, what we see with our eyes. Jesus acknowledges it, alludes to it with his mouth, and the earth responds in a terrifying way. The facts of the, of the crucifixion, the brutality of it, the giving up of the ghost of Jesus, the grave, all of those things are very important. The facts, it couldn't have happened without the fact of it. It was appropriate that Jesus should die in this way, a uniquely or especially awful death. But the facts alone could not have accomplished what we needed. Something more is going on. Something behind those facts. Jesus' sufferings are unique. Behold and see, says Lamentations, behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow. Is there any sorrow like my sorrow? Well, what's unique about it? What's unique about his sorrow? It's of the utmost importance because he is, his death is who we trust in. It's what we hope in. It's what we believe answers the problem and averts our, our inevitable direction, decline down into hell and turns us and lifts us up to heaven. So what is unique about it? It's this. It's that Christ, in his sufferings and death, was making propitiation. He was making propitiation for our sin. He was taking our place under the, the fountain of God's wrath. That was a fountain prepared for us, and he stood there. 
and received it. He, he offered himself. He laid his own life down for you. That's what propitiation means. But how does that work? Well, there's much more to this than you could possibly imagine. We could possibly say in 20 sermons. This is, the Bible is all about how this works. We, if we were going to sufficiently cover it, we would have to go all the way back to the fall, and we'd have to, we'd have to talk about the, the pervasive nature of sacrifice at the core of the world after the fall. We'd have to talk about God making that very clear as he, after Adam sinned and they, they covered themselves with fig leaves, he said, no, no, no. And he killed some animals. He made a sacrifice and he clothed them in those sacrifices. We'd have to move forward to the patriarchs and note that they all offered sacrifices, almost, it seems, intuitively. We'd have to move forward to where God makes this very explicit. He institutionalizes sacrifices essential to coming to him as coming into his presence. You can't come without a sacrifice. That is the law of Moses. And they would bring their animal. The animal, of course, was perfect and spotless. Couldn't have any blemishes. They bring this animal. And they, while cutting its throat, the, the man who brought, the head of the household or whoever brought the sacrifice, would, while cutting its throat himself, would put his hand on top of the head of this sacrifice and kill it. And that act is propitiation. It's a transference of the guilt of the sinner onto this animal. And then the animal is cut up, put onto a fire, and it's just consumed. And the smoke of that fire goes up and appeases God. God put that into place. And we'd have to go on from there, and we would have to talk about the prophets and how they say this is going to be fulfilled in a man, a son, a servant. And then we would see that it is fulfilled in everything that Jesus said and did. Perfectly fulfilled. And all of that would be evidence of what the Holy Spirit says later in Hebrews chapter 9. All things are cleansed with blood. All things are cleansed with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And the overwhelming testimony of Scripture is that all these lesser sacrifices, that the Old Covenant, are fulfilled in Jesus. But even after we had if we had time to, to go through that in careful detail and analyze it all and lay it out there and see it, we would still be left with the question, well, how? How? How can that, how can that transfer? How does it work? How can the sacrifice, even the sacrifice of Jesus, of a man, how can it, how can it appease God? How can he take my place? Well, the answer to that question rests in two, I think, essential differences between us and Jesus. 
There's at least two really important ways Jesus is different than you. While he bore our nature, took on him, clothed himself in clay, took on our life and lived it, he's different. You're a sinner. And Jesus is not. You're a sinner and Jesus is not. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. A very essential, important thing to note about Jesus. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. And you and I were conceived in Adam. He was our head. Christ's head was God. He escaped this transference of guilt. He did not have this nature of sin like you and I have. And as a result, he did not commit the least sin. That's what our catechism, I teach the, the, my girls, says. He did not commit the least sin. He was guiltless, faultless. Secondly, you're a finite being And Jesus Christ is an infinite being. You're a finite being and Jesus is an infinite being. Both of these things that Jesus is sinless and he's infinite. Set him apart and make him an atoning, a proper atoning sacrifice. One who can take on himself the guilt of the whole world. Your guilt and mine. He could swallow death for all time. That's what it was said in Isaiah he would do. Jesus, because he's infinite, could swallow death for all time. Because Jesus was perfect and infinite, his temporary, his temporary agony, his temporary agony, could be perfectly and infinitely acute. In a way, your and my sufferings, even in hell, cannot accomplish. Our sufferings in hell are because we deserve them. And because we're finite. And there's a lot more there than I can possibly explain, but I think this is true, okay? Because we are sinful and finite, God's wrath will never be satisfied in us. It will be poured out forever and ever and ever. And it must be because we are not, we're neither sinless nor infinite as Jesus is. Jesus could drink the cup of God's wrath fully in a moment of rejection. He could drink it fully in one moment of rejection. He could swallow up death for all time because of his clear conscience. When we're rejected, it's because of our sin. We deserve it. Because of this, it takes an eternity of torment for justice to be satisfied in us. But with Jesus, it's different. He was rejected, not because of his sin, He was rejected because of our sin. He was wholly harmless and undefiled. Another catechism answer. 
He was punished for your sins. And for God's wrath against sin to be poured out on a man, a being that's infinite and sinless, is such a contradiction, such a cosmic contradiction, that in a moment it could be ultimate. God punishing himself, his son, his beloved son, who is infinite and sinless. And in a moment, it's sufficient. A moment of that rejection is sufficient for you and me. The eternal father rejected his only begotten son, gave him over to death, made him feel the agony of being rejected of God. His father, he said, why have you forsaken me? And that was contrary to nature, as nature testified. The earth shook, the rocks split, the, dark, the sky went dark. Isaiah 53 says, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed." Later on it says that the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render, and this is where it starts to turn positive, if he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. That's a promise that could not be made to you or me, because we're sinful and finite. Jesus could taste death, swallow it up, and the wrath of God could could be brought to bear on him, and he could live after it. That's what's unique about Jesus. You and I can't do it. Sin brings upon us no promise of life after it. But when it's brought to bear on Jesus... There's promise in life because of his holiness. It says, in Hebrews, I think, it says, he was heard for his great piety. What did he say at the last moment of his life? Into your hands I commit my spirit. And he said to the thief on the cross, this day you'll be with me in paradise. He was heard in his prayer to God because of his great piety. And because of his great piety, his holiness, his sinlessness, that prayer was heard. And God did not leave his soul in hell. John Calvin says about Isaiah 53, Here the prophet draws a contrast between us and Christ. For in us nothing can be found but destruction and death. 
In Christ alone is life and salvation. He alone brought medicine to us and even procures health by his weakness and life by his death. For he alone hath pacified the Father. He alone hath reconciled us to him. Man of sorrows, what a name. Comes from that passage, Isaiah 53. Man of sorrows, what a name. Well, I was struck as I was thinking this morning about this, that passage. The option is, Jesus can be the man of sorrows who can taste death for everyone and can come out living. Or you can be the man of sorrows and they will never be satisfied. That sorrow will never end because you're finite and because you were sinful and deserved it. And you think you're going to be heard for your great piety when your day comes? I'm not going to be heard for mine. He made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. And because of his piety, he not only died, took God's wrath upon him, but he lived. He lived. He lives. And wonder of all wonders, he invites us to die and live vicariously in him. He invites us to die and live in him. We are to look to the cross, and we're to see that Jesus died the death that we can't die. We'll spend eternity dying, trying, trying to die that death. Does that make sense to you? In hell... That's how I understand hell, is we'll spend eternity trying to die the death. God will put us there, and it will never be satisfied, his wrath, in you. It is, has been satisfied in Jesus Christ. And we have this invitation from God, who loved the world, who loved the world, and sent Christ to die. We have this invitation to come and die in Christ. To see that he died the death. He descended into the hell that we're unworthy even to descend into. And he lived because of his great piety, having swallowed up death for all time, for everyone. And he invites us to enter into that life by faith So, would you come under the blood of Jesus? Those of you who have not, who have not trusted in Christ, who have not died that death, who have not entered into it by faith, and seen that God has been satisfied 
His justice has been satisfied in the death of his son. Come into that death. That hell. And also experience the joys of the life that he offers you as well. Come in. Come under the blood of Jesus Christ. I mentioned, though, at the beginning that there is, depending on our standing in Jesus, there are the, 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 the circumstances, the sufferings, the troubles, the death that surrounds us in this world will have, will have different perspectives on it. It will have a different meaning for us. On the one hand, if we're outside of Christ, there will be just the bell of doom driving us down to hell, tolling our impending eternal death. Or, if we're in Christ, what do they become? Remember what James says, consider it all joy because the trying of your faith works patience, perseverance, endurance. Many of us who are in Christ give ourselves to wrongly interpreting the sufferings of our life, the pains the sorrows of our life. We need to stop because everything about the crucifixion, everything about Good Friday, everything about the scriptures and what they say about it testify to the truth that all things work together for our good in Jesus Christ. And we should take joy in them, in those sufferings, knowing that it's evidence of God's Love and discipline of his children. So I invite you, those who have not trusted in Jesus and his work, you can let him be the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, or you can be acquainted with it forever. Take your pick. And those of us who have trusted in Christ, Have faith. He sanctifies to us our deepest distress. We are to consider it all joy. Last night we sang that song, um, More Love to Thee, and it has that verse, Sin, grief, and pain. Sweet are the messengers. Sweet their refrain. In Jesus Christ they can be sweet. As we live by faith and trust and hope in his life and his resurrection and his power to overcome death and to have swallowed it up for all time, as we meditate on that, as we look at the circumstances of our life through those eyes, the eyes of faith, we can consider it all joy and we can trust the Father to love us and to have ordained these circumstances for our good. Amen? Let us pray. Gracious Father, we turn to you now by faith in your Son, and we ask that you would help us. That the rest of this day, the rest of our lives, would be lives lived under your cross.
lived in faith in the work of Jesus Christ and in his perfect atoning sacrifice for sin. Help us, Father, to have faith, not only for that, to trust in Jesus, but to live as if we do, and to see the circumstances of our lives as renewed and sanctified in him, working together for our good. Help us not to complain, to despair, but to have joy in our life through Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.